live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. Areas of trauma is a phenomenon where somebody can get into trauma trouble um, without being the primary witness of seeing an event happen. So, for instance, uh, a journalist or researcher could be reading accounts in depth uh, or seeing lots of images of events happening in another place and be affected almost as if they were a witness there. Although we intellectually we know these events could be happening thousands of miles away, our bodies aren't so sure, so we don't necessarily know for certain that these things aren't happening in the room around us. Most of us as adults are so interested in it, we, we watch it over and over and over again. And one of the things we know about children is they think if they see things over and over again that it's happening over and over again. Uh, it's also okay to talk to them about how I'm feeling. You know, I'm upset, I'm scared, but you know what? This is something that's very rare. It's a bad thing that happened by somebody who did a bad thing, but it happened a long way away. It's not here. It doesn't happen often, and I'm going to keep you safe. And good evening and welcome to Road to Recovery. I'm your host this evening, Yona Bud, and I'm in the studio with Natasha and Corey. We're happy to have you join us this evening. We know you have other choices and you chose us, so we're very, very happy. I want you to write, say, uh, call us in right now. If I give us a call here right now, 416-870-6400 or outside the area, 888-225-8255. You're listening to Road to Recovery. This is a show where we help one another, we connect, and that means you need to call me so that I can help you and you can help me and around it goes. Very, very difficult times to be living in right now. I, I can't believe I keep saying that. It's almost like a repeat of my opening monologue week after week after week, whether it's the pandemic or it's a blockade in Ottawa or people taking over downtown Toronto. And now we are witnessing something that, you know, I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. We're looking at a, a war that is uh, unprecedented, uncalled for, unjustified, and uh, beyond question, it is having an impact all over the world. So how's that impacting you? How are you feeling? Give me a call. Let me know. Is it keeping you up at night? You have some nightmares thinking about the visions and the video and the sounds that you've heard on radio, the material that you read in any one of the media uh, coverage, um, um, newspapers, magazines, whatever's out there. Well, you can actually get post-traumatic stress disorder from watching media coverage of an event. <clears throat> it's an absolute real thing. And imagine if you're coming from a country that's war-torn, where bombing and takeovers and radical activities and buildings being destroyed and soldiers in the streets and gunfire all through the night. Imagine you've come to Canada, safe place to live, nice place to be, people, very little... Uh, trauma, drama, other than uh, last few weeks and uh, last few months or so in Ottawa. But beyond that, pretty safe place to be. And you watch TV, and we're watching TV and listening to the radio and reading about what's going on in the world. And it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing that we see. It's not a good thing in terms of what it does to us. Post-traumatic stress disorder has been on psychiatric books for over 20, 23 years. And before terrorist attacks and before the 9-11 terrorist attacks. No one ever really entertained the possibilities that watching disturbing images of trauma on TV could actually 
give rise to the disorder, could actually bring it upon us, right? So the notion remains a bit controversial, but new research suggests that PTSD might indeed be transmitted over the airwaves. The study finds that those who spent more than six hours a day watching media coverage, listen, I'm talking to people every day that are calling me up going, hey, I got a lot of trauma and stress and, you know, a lot of anxiety about what I'm, what I'm reading and watching in the, on TV. And, you know, I, I heard this for two years and a bit. Has it related to the pandemic, watching numbers and people dying and counts and all that? And now we're watching this stuff in the streets. And for people who come from that, they can't sleep at night. It keeps them awake. And for those of us that are watching others suffer, a lot of us are empathetic and keeps us awake at night and we can't sleep. Two weeks actually after the marathon, Boston Marathon bombings, um, there were, there was a study done and 4,675 Americans who completed the web survey discussed the fact that they had lingering stress reactions in media, from the media exposure in the wake of the bombings. These were people that were nowhere near Boston at all. 4,675 people dis- discussed their anxiety and their discomfort and their inability to function the, the same after watching the, expo- the, 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 the actual bombings over the airwaves. Direct exposure to the bombings, having been there or being in a close relationship where someone was affected, that the number goes up even more so. Shootings at the Sandy Hook Elementary School, there were studies done after that. There were hundreds and hundreds of kids that signed that, uh, took place in that survey that discussed having post-traumatic stress and not being able to sleep or eat or get out of bed or want to go to school for months and months after the event after watching the news played over and over again, reading about it over and over again. Three years after terrorist attacks of 9-11, people are still reported of having post-traumatic stress symptoms related to visions of what they saw on TV. The most important, the most plausible uh, interpretation of the study's findings, because there was, in fact, a study done as it relates to um, media exposure and PTSD, was that people who are most distressed in the aftermath of such an event are probably more likely to engage media coverage as a way of coping with the experience, they wrote. Although this may be beneficial initially because a person feels connected, over time the repeated media-based re-exposures may contribute to a self-perpetuating cycle of distress. We know for a fact that after the 9-11 attacks, people were affected in negative ways. We know that kids were affected in negative ways. If you find yourself now feeling that you're anxious or stretched after watching news or watching the coverage of the the, uh, war between Russia and Ukraine, then you need to stop watching it. You need to limit the amount of exposure you have. You need to be able to balance that with exposure if, if it's TV, exposure of TV that's more positive. So it's not, you don't leave yourself lose, you know, walking away from the TV on a low, so to speak. You want to try to leave on a high. And I know that sounds a little irrational, a little uncomfortable, and perhaps a little insensitive. But you not sleeping at night and feeling anxious and not being able to eat, perhaps drinking more than you should or taking the, an extra sleeping pill here and there, that's not going to fix anything in the world. It's going to make your world more difficult. And there's literature regarding children and television that clearly asserts that too much viewing of disaster-related television can and is harmful, can, could be and is harmful. The statistics from before 9-11 attacks, the television, the average, um, the average person watched more than seven hours a day. This doesn't necessarily need one person watching TV for seven hours straight, but nonetheless, right, it's nonetheless, uh, it, it affects different people that watch, uh, watch TV in different ways. Um, 
the, there's a clip from the uh, the clip that came from the the Boston. Uh, there's a clip that comes from the Boston uh, marathon bombings, and uh, that affects. Uh, that was affecting, uh, you know, people in so many ways when they saw that over and over again. You know, Corey Manuel, who's our my producer, uh, sent me a message here um, as we're talking, saying that you know he hasn't sleep. He has very difficult time sleeping himself as a result of the the clips from the Boston bombings and things that he saw in today's um, today's news. People take it to heart. If you're a visual person, it's even more difficult. I'm a very visual person, right? So guidance you need to guidance you need to provide make sure that your kids understand there are many good people out there let them know when they're reading the watching the news or reading what's going on that they have to understand there are many people helping and fighting to make this world a better place don't leave them on the low so to speak let them walk away on a high the news often tells us bad things that happen in the world you got to let them know that that news in particular here I am a broadcaster but we do trade on the gooey stuff and the gory stuff because that's what brings in viewerships and listenership. So kids have to understand that planes are safe. Kids have to understand you can travel to places in the world and feel safe and that what they see on TV doesn't have to be their reality. We'll come back from break. We're going to talk about a program uh, in Vancouver that deals with first responders. Uh, it's, a, it's a mental health program with first responders and uh, police together. And uh, we're going to be talking to a guest about that and uh, sharing that story in just a minute. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yonabud on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. You've got Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us here on 640 Toronto. We're happy to have you. If you want to join in for anything, you want to send us a message or give us a call, give us a call here at 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255, or you can text me directly. I set it up just for you. Yeah, you're looking at me right now. I set it up just for you. 647-488-0086. Love to hear from you. A new mental health police service is now available on the North Shore in Vancouver. Uh, a new men- It's a support service available across the North Shore's police departments have officially teamed up with health professionals to launch something called CAR-22. It's an integrated mental health response team. It's staffed by officers from the North Vancouver RCMP and West Vancouver Police Department, with some members also part of the Integrated First Nations Unit. CAR-22 pairs officers with a mental health professional from Vancouver Coastal Health, who will ride along with them during their shift. The pilot project is aimed at assisting marginalized and vulnerable populations in the community who face mental health challenges. West Van Police wrote in a statement announced formally on Monday, February the 1st, CAR 22 will be active six days a week from Monday through Saturday, 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. and will respond to requests from officers and other medical professionals for med- uh, mental health support. Uh, one of the people say, I think we've, uh, I think we've always needed uh, to be, uh, we always need to cons- be considering how we do, uh, how we do, we, how do we meet the adapt our services to respond to the diversity of our community in Vancouver, uh, according to uh, one of the experts on the team. In a statement to North Shore News, Sergeant Peter uh, DeVries, one of the North Vancouver RCMP, uh, said um, the Mounties are concerned first and foremost with the safety and well-being of the public. And Sergeant DeVries is my guest this evening. Welcome, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jonas. Uh, it's good to be on the air with you. That's a pleasure. So, uh, Sergeant or Peter? Oh, call me Peter. I'm a sergeant. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm a Peter first. 
<laughs> okay. So I got you at home at night with your family. So you're definitely Peter or dad or something, I'm sure. So, um, Peter, t- tell me about this. I know we've been, they've been talking about this in Toronto. They've uh, got a little pilot going, I think, in uh, coming to se- some of the sectors in the downtown Tenderloin areas. Um, it's kind of a, you know, a little dribs and drabs of it, but it sounds like you guys are diving in in a big way. Maybe give us an idea of kind of how this started, your involvement and so on. And I'll just kind of ask questions as we go. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll give you a little bit of context just for your listeners. Um, North Vancouver and West Vancouver are two sort of neighboring communities on the North Shore. And this is just across the bridge from the Vancouver Centre. Now, Vancouver has its own uh, municipal police department. West Vancouver actually has uh, its own municipal police department. And North Vancouver is policed by the RCMP. So we have uh, two police agencies on the North Shore uh, that cover West Vancouver and North Vancouver. We've teamed up uh, together on this initiative, as we have with other initiatives, and we've uh, we've brought in a psychiatric nurse from Vancouver Coastal Health. All these Vancouver, West Vancouver, North Vancouver becomes a little bit confusing for people who don't live in the area, and I can understand that. But Vancouver Coastal Health is a health authority that looks after both Vancouver and the North Shore, which includes North and West Vancouver. So uh, Vancouver Coastal Health has provided uh, two psychiatric nurses now who will ride with officers from the mental health unit. And that mental health unit is comprised of uh, officers from both West Vancouver Police Department and the North Vancouver RCMP. And they ride together in a car and they will provide an added level of support for any calls where there is a need for mental health supports. Now, the model is based on a collaborative approach to providing a wraparound sort of service to members of the community who require that extra level of care. And it brings a mental health professional in the form of a psychiatric nurse right to their door to be able to provide those uh, services, those connections to support networks in the community. There are a number of different uh, uh, agencies that provide a variety of supports for people struggling with mental health and addiction issues. And that uh, psychiatric nurse can provide those direct connections in addition to having access to a person's medical history, which, of course, the police don't have. Uh, it's, it's a collaborative unit, and it brings together uh, both police and uh, medical professionals to get the kind of service that people in crisis urgently need in the place where they're, where they're experiencing these crises. Let me, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's amazing initiative and, uh, uh, I want to ask a bunch of questions about your role and I got a whole bunch of things I'm writing down as quickly as you're talking. But qu- the quick, the couple of, the first couple of quick questions is if, if, uh, if a healthcare professional is in the vehicle with the police officer and they're accessing the, let's say they're ac- accessing, uh, my health records, okay? Um, to the extent that they have to share any of that information with the police officer, how is that affected or being affected as it relates to the Privacy Act and all that? I, I know as a, as a therapist, it's very difficult for me to coordinate, coordinate my medical team with outside medical teams when we're trying to you know save a life in, the, in a crisis mode. I can only imagine it's it's, it's got to be pretty much the same for you guys. But obviously, they can't disclose the the real medical stuff. But I mean, do they cross the line maybe a little bit for the benefit of the patient? No, of course, we have to abide by those privacy rules. And and you're right. The federal privacy legislation is very clear on the types of information that uh, that can be shared both publicly and um, and by people who have possession of that information. It's you know, the privacy of individuals, particularly particularly as it relates to their health, is extremely important. Uh, That said, 
it's also important for the police and the medical health professionals to be able to share necessary information. Number one, Mm -hmm. to make Mm -hmm. sure that the community remains safe. So, for example, you know, if a person is in a mental health crisis and they're posing a risk of harm to themselves or to someone else in the community, uh, it's very important for the police to understand the dynamics behind that person's behavior uh, to the extent that they know, okay, this person has a medical diagnosis that causes them to to behave in certain ways when they're in a mental health crisis. At the same time, uh, you know, the, the medical professionals, once they are dealing with an individual who has a medical condition, they also need to be confident that the police understand the dynamics and that they've made that situation safe so that the, the, so the nurse can provide that care. And that's really what's, what's beneficial about this partnership. Is if there is a dangerous situation, now the, what we would not do is we would not bring that uh, CAR-22 uh, pairing into a first response situation because we can't put a psychiatric nurse in a dangerous situation. They're not armed. They're not trained as police officers. They don't have any of the tools, uh, safety tools that we have. So let, let, let me let me cut. I, I have to cut in only because yeah. we have limited yeah, time, and I want to. I don't mean to cut you off because I could listen to you all day. But but so here's my question. So my question is: the, the, a crisis call. So uh, responding to uh, man with woman in house, wield, yielding or wielding a knife. I'm not sure the right expression. It has a knife in his hand. Potentially a dangerous situation. You you and your and your and your team go out and do the remarkable work that you do. But you really can't take a nurse into a situation to quote unquote talk a guy like that down. You have to, I guess, use your train. I mean. You must have police officers, including yourself, to some extent, trained in crisis, uh, uh, crisis, uh, you know, management or the, you know, the de-escalation of crises and so on. Um, so it's, it's, I guess, there's only there has to be a certain criteria. So what is that? We only got a couple of minutes left, but what's the criteria related to a call where 22 would be a good fit? So police have received a report of someone acting erratically in a neighborhood. Uh, first responders go there. They determine that this person is in a mental health crisis. They make sure that the person is not armed, that the person is not posing any kind of risk of danger to somebody else, but it's clear to them that this person has a mental health concern. CAR-22 can then come in, and rather than us having to, uh, rather than the police making that assessment, okay, can we apprehend this person under the Mental Health Act and bring them to the emergency room and have, bring them in front of a, of a physician, which is what, what the, uh, the Mental Health Act authorizes police to do. Right. We have a psychiatric nurse who can go with an officer and directly in that situation say, okay, I can very clearly and quickly see this person has not taken the proper medication or their medications right. aren't working. They're right. experts, uh, incredibly um, uh, skilled at, at, at identifying patterns of, of behavior that indicate to them certain types of mental illness. They just bring this added level of, of um, uh, expertise to that situation. The other dynamic is that very often people in a mental health crisis have a reaction to the police, and right. it can be traumatic to be, to be dealt with by police when you're having essentially a medical incident. Meltdown. So, yeah, ha- yeah having a nurse there helps to really yeah. de-escalate. Now, our officers obviously are trained in, you know, extensively in de-escalation techniques and trauma-informed practice, and, and we have a lot of those culturally sensitive, um, you know, culturally informed response training that we do, but we can't match the skill sets and, and the expertise that a nurse has. But I'll give you another example. Like, that's, that's in a crisis situation where a person has reached crisis 
And then mm-hmm. they, they, there's this, you know, excellent service that, that can come in and, and provide that contact for uh, a person. But the unit also does proactive work. So there are clients who have been uh, identified in the community yeah. as requiring mental health supports. Smart. The officer and the and the, the psychiatric nurse, CAR 22, will go proactively and build those relationships and visit. Just a check-in, like a wellness check. Exactly. And yeah. very often they can identify when a person may be decompensating or uh, maybe moving toward a situation where they might otherwise find themselves in a crisis. And having that nurse expert there to be able to identify those people in those situations can say, you know what, let's get you back uh, to the clinic. We'll do a full workup on your, on your, um, your medication levels and see where you're at. Maybe you need to you know, some, some tweaking in the medication. So what that does is it, it prevents us reaching that crisis situation. And that's what's so effective about this partnership is it's a double, um, it's a double pronged approach. We prevent, but we also have that wraparound response service in a crisis situation. I'm talking to Peter, uh, Sergeant Peter DeVries. Uh, I'm going to call him Peter. Peter, will you come back another time? I want to talk some more about you. We're just running out of time, and I want to hear more about the program and the success, and I, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you too. So, uh, okay, if we get you on another Saturday night soon? Absolutely. Call me anytime. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, Sergeant Peter DeVries, he's with the North Vancouver RCMP, obviously one of the good guys for sure, interested in making a difference, and we're so happy you could join us today. We'll have him on again, and uh, I can hardly wait because i got so many questions I didn't get to answer or ask for him to answer. Uh, we'll be right back. We're going over time here, so we've got to run. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, Ma, what's for lunch? What are we having for lunch? Oh, no, we're not going to have sandwiches again, are we? Uh, Dad, can we have, like, takeout? Can we have money to go to, to the store after at, at lunchtime and get our lunch there instead? Like, that's what kids say these days. I mean, when I was a kid, it was always a good lunch, but, you know, got a little boring after a while. You're listening to Yona Bud here on Road to Recovery, and we're talking about what to send your kids to school with at lunchtime. And, in fact... We have a dietitian who's going to join us right now. Her name is Natalie Georgieva. She's a registered dietitian specializing in eating disorder support. She's with JM Nutrition, and she's our guest this evening. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Yona. How are you? I'm good. I, I, do I want to be one of your kids at lunchtime or don't I? <laughs> of course you do. Okay. Tell me why. Are, you, are, you able, are we able to send kids to school with healthy things that are still fun to eat? Absolutely. Yes. It's all about how the food is presented. Um, of course, you know, how often the child's been exposed to that food, whether they've been involved in preparation. But of course, kids can find food very fun and exciting. Okay. So for, I got a bunch of questions here and we'll try to fly through them as best we can. Uh, but because uh, I'm just so excited to get you on the phone. I mean, food is, be- as I get much older, food is becoming a, a real thing. Uh, and I'm surrounded by people in my life, including my children, uh, who are now grown adults who are careful about what they eat. So, you know, I'm very conscious of what goes in my tummy these days. But what should I include in my, if I'm having my grandchildren over and we usually do and they have sleepovers, if I'm sending them to school on a Monday morning, I typically want to make it like the greatest lunch ever, but the nutritional value is probably less than zero. What should I include in my kids' lunches if I'm sending them to school? 
Well, Yona, you know what's funny? You mentioned sandwiches earlier, and as much as they get a bad rep, sandwiches and wraps, kids tend to like simple things. But of course, it depends on what components are in the sandwich or the wrap. But uh, I find that the simpler the meal, usually the better. And kids tend to like what I call finger foods. So foods that don't necessarily need to be eaten with utensils. They can just freely pick them up with their hands. That makes it more fun. So if we're thinking about a sandwich, uh, kids tend to also really like having what, what are called deconstructed meals. So meals okay. where their individual components are separated. Usually it's a container divided and you can put the little ingredients into each compartment and then they can actually build it themselves. So if you oh, cool. really so hang on, hang on, hang on. So send you send the I got to cut you off because I'll we'll never have enough time. But and I don't mean to be rude. It's just I'm sorry. It is what it is. But no, so no. so 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 that proportionate stuff in their in their in their containers and then they what build their own sandwich. Yeah, exactly. So you can crack technically slices of bread or maybe crackers and some sliced meat, maybe some cheese, have a section for perhaps some fruit, maybe berries or grapes they can grab with their hands, veggies and dip. Kids tend to really like having a dip with veggies as opposed to plain veggies. So that makes it a lot more fun. And when we think about the different food groups to incorporate in the meal, we want to have a little bit of everything. So some protein, that could be maybe chicken, for example, some fat, that could be the cheese, let's say, or maybe the dip for the veggies, and then some fruit or veggies, of course, uh, and then the carbohydrates. So that would be the, the bread or the wrap. Okay, what about proportions? I know that uh, you know with I deal with kids that have eating disorders, and so do you. It always seemed to have a mom or somebody in their life going, "You're not eating enough," or "You're eating too much." What about the whole concept of proportions? Like, how much food should I send uh, in the lunchbox itself? Like, am I am I uh, am I filling it to the brim so there's more than enough, or just enough? And how do I know that? Yeah, that's a really great question. I would say to be on the safe side, you could certainly pack more, but kids are very intuitive and they know exactly how much food is enough for them. So if they end up coming home with food that hasn't been eaten, sure, maybe it was if they didn't like the food, that might have been why they didn't finish it. But they also could say, you know, I had enough. I'm full. Oftentimes, parents tend to get really concerned that their child isn't eating enough, and that might be a very valid concern in the area of eating disorders, but otherwise, children are very in tune with their hunger and fullness cues, and so their appetite fluctuates on a day-to-day basis, so some days they might be eating way more than usual, other days it might be less, but it balances out overall. have a message here from someone who says, my daughter likes the same lunch every day. Is that okay? Yeah, you know what? It could be a phase for a child. I've seen cases where children are really enthralled in a certain meal or snack, and then for whatever reason, that high just kind of fades, and they start to be interested in other foods. So depends on what the meal is, I would say, or what the snack is. But if it's an overall balanced meal with those different food groups, then that's fine. Yeah. Um 
how cool does the lunch have? This is not this is, this is my own question. Um, how cool does the lunch have to be so that you don't look like that jerky kid in class? I remember when I, when I was a kid. No disrespect to any of the kids in my class. I don't even remember who after them were. It was when Flintstone was still taking you know uh, his his daughter to school on a dinosaur. But um, you know there were kids in my class that brought you know foods that smelt real bad, didn't look real great, and then there were kids in my class that brought like these awesome you know hero sandwiches or chicken wings or pizza you know they were like the heroes you wanted like to steal their lunch if you could but you know how how do you fit in your sort of ethnic cooking perhaps if that's where you come from with the fact that you know most kids are like you say you know uh, meat you know it's meat sandwiches cheese whatever um how cool does it have to be and how do you make it cool that is a really interesting question, bit of a tough question. I would say there are certain foods that can definitely give off a bit of a stronger aroma. And I know for kids, they can be a little bit tougher to bring those foods. Uh, even things like tuna, that's a common one I think of that yeah, has exactly. more of an aroma. So those ones yeah. might be a little bit tougher to bring just because of the strong aroma and it might, you know, turn off other children and kids can sometimes say mean things. So I might recommend, I find cold foods tend to be better in terms of scent. They're not Good. typically as, as strong smelling. So if you're able to bring a cold meal instead, uh, I think that would be ideal to avoid that situation. Yeah, I remember years ago when we were still allowed to travel and, uh, you know, sit on an airplane and actually eat food. Um, I, I remember, you know, my, one of my favorite sandwiches are like uh, party sandwiches, you know, half tuna, half egg, you know, the those combination. And I was all set to go all packaged up in a really nice plastic Tupperware, all sectioned off, ready to rumble, got on the plane, popped open my lunchbox, my little lunch container, and boy, did it stink. And I ate it anyway, but I'm sure everybody's looking at me going, wow, why would the guy bring the tuna? Anyway, um I digress. Should kids get involved in making their own lunch? And if so, does that improve their ability? Does it improve their consumption value in terms of actually eating what they make? Oh, my gosh. Kids should definitely be involved. And there's no age limit as to when kids should start being involved. I say the younger, the better, because when they're involved in the actual making of the food, not only does it allow for bonding experience with their parents, their caregivers, but they're much more interested in the food. They're much more likely to end up trying the food, especially if it's something new that maybe they haven't had before. So that would be amazing. And I would say, depending on how old the child is, you can decide how complicated you want the task to be. So if they're really young, it might be something as simple as just mixing ingredients together. Maybe as they get older, they're measuring things, chopping things under your supervision, of course. But that is always great to do. And it, there can also be an educational component tied into that if you want to make that a lesson of, um, you know, why it's important for us to eat this food group, the different ways that we can prepare it. Keeping in mind, though, I would say what kinds of nutrition messages are being promoted. I would just say to yeah. parents, be mindful of trying to avoid yeah. the whole concept of good food, bad food. That yeah. we want to try to stay away of because that can lead to a more negative relationship with food. But definitely talking about why it's important to have them. Okay, here I'm going to just flip the switch here a little bit. Why did you become a nutritionist, a dietitian? I'm sorry, a dietitian specializing in these kinds of eating disorders and so on. What is it? Something that triggered you because you were a kid and it interested you, or like how do you get into this kind of work? 
Yeah, you know what? It was, uh, I became interested specifically in becoming a dietitian in grade 10 of high school after I took a food and nutrition course. I highly recommend students take those courses. It was optional for me, not required, unfortunately. If you have it in your school, take it. So that made me fall in love with nutrition. But eating disorders specifically, I realized how prevalent they are. I had the opportunity to do part of my internship at uh, an inpatient center and just seeing how uh, amazing the, the progress was, seeing those patients change. And it's a difficult job. It is. It can be very emotionally taxing. I find I really connect with my clients, but then they're so grateful for the support. And it really is life-changing. So that, to me, gives me the most fulfillment, absolutely. That's amazing. I'm uh, talking to uh, Natalie Georgieva. She is a registered dietitian specializing in eating disorders. You know, the problem is you did a great job. That means we're going to have you back. So uh, you'll have to keep all of your Saturday nights free just in case Yona calls. Uh, but uh, we'd love to have you come back. We have all kinds of nutritional uh, conversations or d- d- conversations around nutrition and kids and eating disorders and so on. Um, so I'd love to have you come back and uh, we'll talk some more. So uh, please do so and uh, have an amazing week and thank you for joining us this evening natalie georgieva she's a registered dietitian and she specializes in eating disorders and she works with jm nutrition so if you're looking for some help some guidance some information she is definitely the way to go thank you so much for joining us we'll be right back with another segment here before we go to big break this is yona bud 640 toronto you're listening to road to recovery with yona bud only on 640 toronto Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. Why weren't they just great guests? Uh, Sergeant Peter and uh, this uh, wonderful dietitian. She was um, amazing. Just uh, remarkable. Great, great guests. Good job on my production team for uh, putting these people together. Um, It's just wonderful to uh, connect to people that make a difference and want to make a difference and are excited about making a difference. Um, You know, I don't even know where to go with this next segment. I just, I saw it, I read it, I heard about it, I did a little research, and I was just so annoyed, because uh, I'm not allowed to use the P word apparently anymore, but I was so missed off, How that was with an M, I was so missed off uh, that um, I had to share this. Family and community outraged after Kitchener School calls police on four-year-old. You hearing me? Testing one, two, three. Are you hearing me? Called the cops from the school for a four-year-old. Now, before we get into this sub, this subject, because we've got, you know we got to have a tight out here, uh, so we can go to big break here at nine fifty-six. But um, I remember years back, uh, I was involved. I'm saying now, probably thirty odd years ago, I was involved with the Tourette Syndrome Foundation uh, of uh, Toronto, and which was made up primarily in those days of families that were affected uh, by loved ones who had Tourette's, and. Um, Stories about kids being tied to their desk, uh, locked in rooms, uh, uh, handcuffed, um, all kinds of stuff because they couldn't handle uh, some of the corporealia, which is the uh, you know um, incontrollable swearing. Some of the tics and acts and reactions to the tics, you know, can be a little uncomfortable and definitely can be erratic and loud and distru- disturbing. And they used to 
they used to tie these kids. They used to like schools would like you know hold them down until the parents could show up. Like you, unbelievable. So we got involved and we formed a proper foundation, and it's carried on and now serves you know thousands of people affected, unfortunately. But this is a story about a mother who's traumatized. I, so I get it. This is where I'm coming from here. I, 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 a mother who's traumatized and heartbroken after the police were called to control her four-year-old in November. A member of the local school organization said. Um, the, the president of the Nigerians in the region of Waterloo said the children, child was also isolated and denied access to the washroom. We're talking about a four-year-old here, not nobody with a gun. We're not talking about, unfortunately, a 14-year-old with a gun that's caught in the, you know, in the school. This is a four-year-old. Let's, let's keep going here. The school board has failed by criminalizing that child. That's a baby, according to this uh, person whose name is Fidelia Yukeji. I hope I pronounced it properly. Uh, the incident happened on Monday morning, uh, November 29th, 2021, when a police said the principal of a school called about a student in crisis who said was becoming violent. The school identified as Kitchener's John Sweeney Catholic Elementary School. Student was put in a safe and secure room. I'm not sure what school has a safe and secure room. Never had one of those when I was in school. While police were on their way, police then tried to de-escalate the child's behavior upon arrival. After not being able to reach the mother, officers drove the child to another family member's uh, they were able to get in contact with. After a three-hour meeting on Wednesday with the director of the education, uh, members of the Parents of Black Children, Early Childhood Development Initiative, and so on, Nigerian Association of Regional Waterloo, uh, stood outside the Waterloo Catholic School Board in downtown Kitchener. The mother was present at the meeting but did not feel comfortable speaking while dealing with the incident. Uh, she said... She gave the president of the association uh, permission to speak on her behalf. It was very clear that at the end of the day that there was a systemic and anti-black racism issue at heart of all of that that happened today. It was that schools had followed a process to support child when they called police a process uh, uh, UKG says lacks empathy or absolute care for the well-being of the child. In their own language, he was just too active. They couldn't control him. Okay, how about you distract him? Okay, how about you give him a toy? Okay, how about you give him a treat? Okay, how about you, you know, show up with a therapy animal, a dog or something? Uh, like, there are a lot of other choices to de-escalate a child. I've used them. I've, I've, I've deployed them. I've seen them happen. I've been trained around them. Fortunately, I, unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't deal with children that young uh, primarily. But um, there are other ways to distract a child who's in a bad way. If they're in a, if they're in some form of psychotic, uh, state of mind as a result of an overdose or something, or, or, you know, some, you know, uh, in, ingestion of something that would uh, create uh, levels of psychosis that make it difficult to rationalize. But it's a four year old. I can't get it. Anyway, allegations against the school include putting the child in a separate room and being held down. Come on, man. Denying access to the washroom, which led to the child urinating on themselves. You know what that feels like for a kid? I can tell you what it feels like for an adult. It's not a lot of fun. For a kid, it's devastating, especially when they have the ability to get up and go to the washroom if you let them. Come on, folks. John uh, Shuchuk, WCDSD Chief Managing Officer, said details about the police being called and the specific allegations cannot be discussed due to the legislation protecting the privacy of the end. Of course not. Of course not. The safety and the well-being of our students and, and staff is first and foremost and always the top priority of Waterloo Regis Catholic Schools, according to Shucha. Come on, man. Give me a break. And so now they go on to say, in circumstances where students are struggling, all available resources are employed, 
to ensure all opportunities for success are offered to the students and their families. They did not do what was in the best interest of this kid and their family, according to this report. Although, I only know a little bit because we can't hear the whole story because there's protection against the kid and the family. Well, I say in this case, the protection serves in the best interest of the school board, and the teacher who made this call. The process involved multiple meetings with the family uh, and, and the resources and supports were provided by the, school throughout the, by the school throughout the year. To me, it says that black children are not welcome in the system, says Patricia uh, Falope, the founder and CEO of Early Childhood Development Initiative. They open the door, they call the police, take a four-year-old child, hand them over to police, and shut the door behind them. So Charlene Grant, the chief advocacy officer of Parents of Black Children, said the incident represents the criminalization of black boys and children in the school system. It starts as early as kindergarten. Make This makes me sick. This is insane behavior that we're seeing. It's child abuse. It's system, in systemic system abuse. Uh, the director of education couldn't even utter the words anti-black racism, according to Grant. A meeting with the Waterloo Regional Police Chief Brian Larkin and the services hate crime unit is being arranged. The child is now being moved to another school. But all his friends were at that school. What did the kid do wrong? I still don't know what this four-year-old could possibly have done, how much damage they could do, that adults couldn't constrain, restrain, or distract him, such that this kid needed to be criminalized, pee in his pants, and shipped off to another school. Shame on you, Waterloo Catholic School Board. It is disgusting. Get a handle on yourself, boys and girls, men and women. This is not acceptable behavior. Oh, it just makes me sick. Anyway, we'll be right back after a big break here. So if you want to get up, stretch your legs, go for smoke, have something to eat, do what you need to do. I don't suggest you have a smoke, but if that's your thing, now's the time to do it. Maybe make a little sandwich. Make sure you pay attention to the dietitian. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Nothing too much, and it's getting late, so you've got to be able to digest it too. But we'll be right back real soon. Yonabud 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud. Thank you for joining us on 640 Toronto. I'm in the studio with Natasha and Corey. So happy that you could join us here this evening. We know you have other choices, and we're happy that you chose us. 416-870-6400, if you want to connect with us by phone and give us a call and jump in on the subjects we're talking about. Um, have you ever had to deal with a family member who was in the latter stages of their life in palliative care? Um, I can tell you that uh, in the last uh, month, month and a half, uh, my mom, who uh, is just shy of her 95th birthday, was uh, diagnosed. She had uh, she tested, tested positive for her and my 95-year-old father tested positive for COVID about six weeks ago, five weeks ago. Uh, neither one of them experienced or uh, displayed any real symptoms. Uh, but within a week or so of that diagnosis, um, my mom began to show signs of uh, rapidly decreasing cognition in terms of dementia. She didn't really have dementia kind of going into it. She's not really sick. She doesn't have anything wrong with her, so to speak, thank God. Um, nothing diagnosed physically, but she is now, unfortunately, in the palliative stage of her life. And arranging caregivers to support her and my dad, both with government assistance and private care, um, trying to get doctors involved in the process. Her family doctor was difficult to find. Uh, their aftercare support doctors are almost nowhere to be found. My wife, Pumpkin, who is an unbelievable individual and an angel, 
she did all of the work necessary to uh, get us into a line of uh, support for a lineup to get support from the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care. It's part of the, the Sinai Health Network. And in fact, we have an exceptional gerontologist, a palliative care specialist who deals with uh, seniors and elderly people who has not only been to the house a couple of times, but there is a nurse that comes regularly to check on my mother in her home. And our goal is that my mom, um, go have, fall asleep. And uh, when the time is right, fall asleep and just uh, go off into the next phase of her life um, in her home, in her living room, in a bed that we brought in and made it a more hospital-like setting for her, but uh, in terms of care. But she can, you know, it's her home, in her own home. This quality of palliative care so that people have the ability to pass in their own homes is such a gift. It's such a wonderful, wonderful gift. And not everybody can do it. Not everyone has the, you know, the ability to not, you know, to, 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 that don't, you know, very few people at this age don't require ongoing medical care. Um, but with my mom, it's just a function of cognition and soon she'll stop being able to drink and swallow. And, you know, we know what comes after that, right? Not, not a, not a positive time. And, you know, people said to me, it's, you know, it's a shame that uh, your mother's not in, in great shape. And, you know, who knows? She could kick on like this for months and months. And for her sake, I hope not. But, um, uh, you never know because she's definitely not happy in her skin right now. And, uh, you know, is not, uh, not comfortable. That's for sure. So who do you get? What kind of doctor comes to your house? What palliative care doctors, um, like this fellow Warren Lewin, who's not our doctor, but he's one of the angels out there that do this kind of work. Um, they just try to do their best, right? They desperately try to manage patients' symptoms, control their pain, which is really what it's about, pain and discomfort, making sure that, you know, I just want my mom to be comfortable. I don't want her to be in any pain. I don't want her to be uh, have any, you know, any trauma related to how she feels. Just she should be comfortable, right? That's all you want. For everybody, if they're at that stage, you just want it to be comfortable. But even as the worst of the COVID-19's highly infectious Omicron appears to be over, critically ill COVID patients still continue to fill the hospital beds. And two years after this pandemic emerged in Canada, palliative care doctors are now exhausted. But they're holding steadfast. They can't quit. The star spoke to three palliative care doctors about their experiences caring for the sickest of patients as the pandemic enters its third year now. With restrictions lifted in Ontario, the proof of vaccine system ready to be eliminated on March the 1st in province, mulling an end to all the indoor mask mandates and so on. Everybody's done with this, according to Premier Doug Ford, and ready for things to get back to normal. But because hospitalizations and death rates lag behind daily COVID case counts, hospitals are still facing the pandemic head on. And those that work in palliative care for fear, uh, care fear the changes could leave the vulnerable way behind. It's been very normally distressing to hear the, discuss, the discourse around COVID-19, around COVID, to go to a place where many people are talking about how our society should move on because those who are going to get it are going to get it and people who are elderly or people who with other illnesses anyway. So the health equality lead at Kensington Health, his name is Dr. Nahid Dasani, and they say that breaks my heart because these are the people I care for and they're human beings and they deserve protection, support, and compassion. Dr. Lewin, going back to him, he's the site lead for Palliative Care at Toronto Western Hospital, a great hospital, estimates 40% of the patients he cares for have COVID. Of the 40%, a very small percentage came into hospital as a direct result of the virus. The rest caught the virus while in hospital for unrelated health conditions. God, that's a, just a sad story, right? Like you come to the hospital for something and you end up getting really sick uh, with something else. For those who are in his care, you can understand why they don't want my mother in the hospital, right? 
Um, for those who are in his care for pre-existing life-limiting illnesses, Lewin says COVID is often the tipping point that leads to them being in critical situation. Palliative care focuses on enhancing the quality of a person's life, not a cure, but for those with serious illness. Unlike a hospice, for example, which spoke, focuses specifically on end-of-life care, palliative care patients can actually receive treatment in hope of a cure somewhere alongside of the palliative care. In this case, you know, as, as comfortable as my mother can be made, and uh, we want to avoid things like feeding tubes and all kinds of, of tubes and and, vac- and, va- and uh, <clears throat> intravenous and so on. We don't want her to be uncomfortable. Some patients say, he says, some patients, he says, express regret, this according to Lewin, sadness and frustration over being unvaccinated. For those who, are, who were vaccinated, their loved ones often blame themselves for not doing more to protect them. So it becomes, a, you know, I could have done this and you could have done that. But we're talking about these palliative care doctors. And that's really what this conversation is about. And, you know, who, who's helping them? Where are they getting their support? You know, uh, we put people to care in the center. We provide compassion, according to the doctors. They wear net, they wear masks, they do everything they can. But both Dr. Dasani and Dr. Lewin both say the biggest challenge they face as palliative care doctors during the pandemic is that the level of advocacy required, advocacy required to ensure patients have their loved ones with them during difficult moments, as well as challenges of showing compassion behind a mask at a distance. So not being able to have your loved one with you at a time where your days are ending is heartbreaking for these doctors. Very difficult for them to get their, their their themselves together. They say while they're usually able to get someone into the hospital to be with critically ill patients, it's a labor-intensive process, and there's still lots of regulations to negotiate surrounding the number of visitors. So if someone is going to pass and they have a large family, not many people can get in there at a time to say goodbye. It's really sad. Dr. Samantha Winemaker, she's the medical co-lead at Hamilton Community Palliative Care. Um, She's been on both sides. She's a clinician and a loved one. Uh, her father died due to unrelated health issues at the beginning of the pandemic after spending two weeks in hospital. We felt very dis- disconnected, very desperate, she says. Uh, very helpless to, um, very helpless to, to ha- helpless to ha- have my dad there without us by his side. It's my biggest fear, right? I just want to be where my mom is when the time comes and I don't want it to be in a hospital. That's really all I care about for her own patients who she cares for in an outpatient setting. Most wish to pass at home, but as COVID-19 ravaged hospital resources, she says it may no longer be an option. Dying is a chapter, not a single moment says winemaker and the level of care and assistance needed in homes varies. Most who spend the end of their lives at home require the assistance of a nurse at some point, but say the shortages mean she's had to tell people it very well may not be possible to honor their wishes to stay home. We used to be able to link nurses to people in their homes within days of the request. Now it's upwards of a month. Somehow, fortunately, my wife was able to put something together that made that a little better for us. Anyway, I feel like I don't even recognize the care setting that I've been working in for 17 years. Dr. Lewin says if someone had asked him at the start of the pandemic if he felt he could could still get out of bed each morning to fight this daily battle two years on, he would have told you no. But the pressures of the pandemic, he says, have also affirmed his personal mission to provide the best end-of-life care for those who need it. I can feel really rewarding. It can feel really rewarding to be on the front lines, and it's grueling at the same time. He says be, that being a medical staffer in a pandemic sometimes feel like it's Groundhog Day. And uh, everyone's trying to do their best to really help the entire system to stay afloat, make sure people have the best quality of life as possible, according to Lewin. They can feel, uh, it can, that can feel hard two years into a pandemic but it doesn't mean that they're going to stop trying. 
uh, these are really remarkable, remarkable people. And uh, I'm thankful that uh, they exist, and I'm thankful that uh, we're able to have them in my mom's life uh, right now. And, uh, yeah, it's a difficult time for everybody, but you got to do what you got to do, and uh, right now we are where we are. So, anyway, we're going to come back here and talk about some more stuff. This is Jonah Butt on Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. See you in a minute. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. This is Yona Bud on uh, the Road to Recovery here, 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's now 1020. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your kids, your pet, your pets, your seniors? If you don't know where everybody is that you need to know and keep track of, you need to uh, get tr- get a hold of them. If not, call 911. And if you're having a real problem, give us a call right here, right now, 416-870-6400, and we'll do what we can to help connect you to the right kind of help if that's what you need. If you need to get a hold of me at any point throughout the week, I'm glad to chat with you, and uh, many people do, so I'm glad that you uh, call. So please keep calling, 877-777-5808, 877-777-5808. That's how you get a hold of me through the week, and um, we'll get connected. And if you want to send me an email to the show here, you can do that by sending it to road to Recovery at 640toronto.com. Road to Recovery at 640toronto.com. We'd love to hear from you, and uh, we'll share your information in the following week. This was the saddest Olympics ever. It was like the snow that you saw, you know, was manufactured uh, over a area where there was no snow, lacking water, um, there were all kinds of, you know, natural issues that were at play here. Um, snow machines were, you know, pumping all kinds of snow out, heavily polluting the area. Um, and it just goes on, you know. And then we look at the human interactions. Uh, Communist China, a nation sensitive to mockery and, desp- and desperate for medals, searched the worldwide for people to va- who of vaguely Chinese origin to play for any of for their teams. And... The problem is it was horribly awkward. Was that a win for China or for U.S. training? The medals were tainted. A lot of things were tainted at the Olympics. In the midst of an unwinding doping scandal, the Russian Kamilia Veliva um, gamely skated. It was a showpiece, not for the 15-year-old's characteristic grace and courage, but for child abuse. She looked terrified, fell and nearly fell repeatedly, and kept on going, one, one suspects just out of terror. And if you were to watch her fall, if you watch the event itself and watch this young girl fall and become just kind of trapped in her own, um, I don't know, desperate situation where she didn't have the ability to, um, you know, to get back up and to do what she needed to do. She managed to force herself up. Her Russian coach, uh, Eteri uh, Perdizia, uh, already notorious for cruelty, he berated her. In front of the cameras, you could see it. The child was just cream, was crying, and, and, and she wept. And if you look at the picture of the article, one of uh, the person that's sitting next to her uh, during this terrible time is wearing a, um, find it here, is wearing a badge around their neck in order to participate in the event. And it's a badge that says that they're in the kiss and cry section. There's a kiss and cry section for for. Participants for Olympic uh, participants for athletes, where they have to f- fall apart and break down, and you know we should be there to support them. Well, her coach, her Russian coach, surprise, surprise, 
I'm very anti-Russia today. Unfortunately, I am of Russian descent, so it makes me even more angry. Uh, but, you know, her coach, was just he just berated her. And, and just, you know, she felt horrible. I mean, you know, if I was in her shoes, I'd want to jump off a bridge, God forbid. Anyway, the Russians are famous for doping. Uh, shouldn't have even been there, even as the Russian Olympic Committee shorthand for Vladimir Putin, right? They're Russian government athletes as opposed to Russians, just as the communist Chinese athletes don't compete alone. They represent an authoritarian government that tortures uh, minorities in concentration camps, pollutes with wild abandon, and whose secrecy and dishonesty have alienated much of the world. But equally, how all the stages in these games in China, when the Chinese government who kidnapped the Michaels, right, back in the day, for no real legal reason, kept them hostage in exchange for one of their own, the kidnapping games it's required is now that people are saying it's the kidnapping games. Normally, the, event, the winter event is a joy for Canadians. We see our athletes in the best environment for the unique talents. Instead, we're forced to watch the dregs of Canada occupy Ottawa. This is going back now a week or so. Many of us failing to see our athletes, especially in women's hockey, triumph over and over again. What, what to watch? What to see? Are there dozens of medals or shabby men mooing, mooning the, the news cameras? Our hopes are the athletes returning home won't realize that their efforts didn't get the attention they deserved, and we know how to honor them just as we used to. Although it was a, it's tough, um, a tough and a greasy, ugly year, everything went wrong. These were the saddest Olympics ever. The treatment towards the some of the some of the um, more marginal uh, athletes was just horrific, just a terrible situation. So, I mean, here's the thing: I've dealt with a lot of uh, youth that are um, in my coaching practice. I deal with a lot of youth that are. Um, have their eyes and their have their eyes have their excuse me their sights set on um, on the Olympics on that level of of play if you will, and for many of them, you know, it's a devastating experience because the coaching experience can for them be very demoralizing. I have one kid that's in my coaching practice who talks about his um, his coach in a way that is um, you know very. Uh, very uncomfortable. It talks about his relationship with his coach in a, in, a, in a form more of fear than anything else. And that, you know, his coach yells at him and screams at him and makes him feel bad and makes him feel stupid, makes him feel, it makes him do drills and such that, you know, are uh, outside of all the other, of the other players. And sometimes he comes home, his mother called me to say that uh, so-and-so is not getting out of bed, doesn't want to go to practice or school. And that there's something going on, we need to talk to him. So in our conversations and debriefing and having uh, a proper uh, talk therapy level discussion, we find that really the issue at hand is lack of self-confidence, lack of self-esteem. And the, and this comes as a result of being told that you're stupid and you're slow and you're fat or you're this. I have a patient who it was uh, a dancer, um, um, a gymnast and a dancer. She was working towards being on the Canadian uh, Olympic uh, gymnastics team. She's been in gymnastics since she was nine. She's now 17. And her self-esteem is horrific. She's had more coaches. Her parents have pulled her out of more programs because of the treatment she gets. Because she's a little bigger than most of the girls typically are in gymnastics, and mostly because she's strong and muscular, not because she's fat and lazy, God forbid. 
No kid is, right? Some kids just have difficult times with their eating and some difficult times with their metabolism. But when you're an athlete at that level, people are getting on you all the time, what you look like, what you're, you know, how you conduct yourself, your hairstyle, tattoos, no tattoos. You know, everyone has something to say about you if you're going to potentially represent their country. If you've been to hockey games, just even local rep, you know, rep hockey or, or house league hockey, and you sit in the in the stands as I have in the past to to visit with someone, one of my patients who plays, uh, went to visit them at one of their games not so long ago. And you sit and you listen <clears throat> to the conversations that the parents are having from the sidelines, and the conversations, the words that the fathers and mothers are screaming out at their children. They're not all words of encouragement. They're not all attaboy Billy, way to go, Jane. It's come on, don't pass the buck. Come on, you're so lazy. Get moving. Come on, pick it up. Slow down. You're they're killing you. Right? All kinds of horrible stuff. Kids don't want to hear that. No wonder most people, most young people who have played certain sports since they were very, very little, mostly because their parents kind of kept them in it. You know, some of them just turn away at some point when they're old enough and go, I'm done. I have a close friend of mine who's uh, been a buddy for years and years. He's an exceptional musician. Um, he's a producer. Music, he writes music, jingles, all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> An amazing musician unto his own. When he was a kid, he was playing hockey since he was forever and uh, played rep and played Ontario hockey and all that stuff and was about to be drafted by the Maple Leafs, by the Marlies, uh, to the Maple Leafs farm team and uh, came home one day and said, Dad, I'm not playing hockey anymore. I want to play music instead. And uh, his father was pretty good about it for the most part. But he just backed away because he'd had enough. He'd had enough of being yelled at by coaches. He'd had enough of being, you know, uh, berated by other parents from other teams, from other parents, even on his own team. God, you see that too, right? You see parents giving the kid on the team that took your kid, your kid's spot, giving him a hard time, like he's the bad guy. Like he like that, that 15-year-old's deciding that he's taking over your 15-year-old's spot. It doesn't work like that. There's coaches involved in this process. It's amazing what adults do and, and how they change their demeanor when their children are playing a sport. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily encouraging. You know, there are many parents who do a great job of it and talk to their kids about trying hard and doing the best they can. And it looked like you were working really hard and way to go. And, you know, you'll get it. You'll do better next time. Don't worry. It's only one game. And then there's kids that I see being taken off to the to the cars through the parking lot, schlepping their gear, their hockey sticks and everything with their fathers just steaming. Mothers too, by the way. It's not just a father thing. Steaming. I had a girl that I, a couple of years ago, played hockey uh, for a rep hockey team uh, outside the GTA, and her mother uh, punished her because she didn't try hard enough. She wasn't able to go to a party that, that Saturday night. They played a hockey tournament during the day on Saturday and Friday night. She didn't play very well. She wasn't feeling well, as it turns out. Uh, she didn't play very well, and her mother wouldn't let her go to a, to a party. She actually punished the kid for not playing her best. That's not what this is about, my friends. Listen, I love you guys. I'm going to be straight up with you. If you don't encourage children, they don't turn out well. End of story. Or they find families and other people to encourage them. Sometimes it's not the right connection. Sometimes people end up with the kind of friends you don't want them to have because those friends make them feel special. Those friends make them feel accepted. Those friends don't make them feel small. Those people don't make them feel bad about themselves. 
So come on, man. Let's do a better job of taking care of our kids. Let's do a better job of us as a nation in terms of how we support our athletes and so on. May we never be, uh, never be uh, embarrassed or intimidated uh, by you know the, our actions in public when it comes to our children. You know, if you got something positive to say to your kids, say it. If you're having something negative to say to your kids, if you need to say it, say it in private, not in front of everybody on their team. Not in front of everybody in the ho- in, in, in the in the locker room, or everyone in the in, in the parking lot, or in the restaurant on the way out of the out of the out of the arena. I've seen it all, and it's disgusting. So listen, let's just do a better job. Encourage our kids, like my mom says, or she used to say when she could remember to say it. She would say, "If you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all." And that's how I think we need to deal with our kids the same way. If you got nothing nice to say to them, don't say anything at all, because they don't need to feel worse. It's hard enough to live in your skin as a kid especially these days, especially with the kind of life we've had to endure over the last couple of years. Anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk about nurses on the front line, and uh, they're, uh, they're having a real hard time, and uh, we need to pay attention because without nurses in our uh, society here, we're in real bad shape. So come back. We're going to be talking about nurses on the front line. If you're a nurse or a medical practitioner involved in frontline care or medical care in any way, we want to hear from you, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255 after break. We want to hear from you and uh, share your stories of resilience or not, and perhaps we can help you if you need some help or you can help others by sharing your stories of inspiration. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. This is Yona Bud. You're on the road to recovery. We're almost finished this uh, evening. It seems to be flying by because we're having so much fun. Not really fun, but, you know, sharing what we got to share and doing our job here. I guess it's kind of fun, but I wish the subject matter was a little more elevated and some more. uh, We could be talking about some more uh, positive stories, hopefully, in the years and in in the weeks to come. Uh, But listen, you know. For me to talk about this stuff, to report it, um, you know, talk about the kinds of issues that we're facing today um, on the road to recovery as a nation, as a people, as a society, as a world, uh, trying to find our way back from very uncertain times over the last couple of years, and now seeing what we're seeing going on. So we're going to be together for a long time, hopefully, um, you know, for many years to come. And uh, we're happy that you're able to share here with us. We love you. You're the best audience ever. And uh, we appreciate you being part of our lives um, as much as you are. And we'd love to hear from you. 416-870-6400. Just call, say, hey, Yona, what's up? It's okay. You don't have to have anything meaningful to say. That's enough. I'm happy to hear from you. Maybe a little uplifting, actually. So love to hear from if you feel like calling, just give us a shout out. Say hi to Natasha or Corey if they answer the phone. And uh, we all want to hear some some smiles and chuckles too from you. If you've got a joke, give us a call. Maybe share that just to help people get over the tough stuff uh, when it's possible. How are you getting through it all, right? That's what I want to hear from you. How did you manage this last couple of years and get through it all without kind of blowing yourself up, so to speak? 416-870-6400. Nurses are at the front line of everything. Think about it. Pandemic toll has nurses seeking counseling more than any others in the healthcare profession. With the pandemic entering its third year, many healthcare workers are completely exhausted. They face long hours, limited breaks, and as we know, terrible staffing shortages. So for for nurses, the work has been especially grueling. Nurses are at the front line of everything, according to Aram. Shloga, Shlogala, an ER nurse in Toronto. I apologize if I didn't spell her, pronounce her name. I, th- I believe it's Shlogala. 
Um, we're the first face you see when you come into the ER, the first person you interact with that will provide you with comfort. And it's true. I mean, if you've been to an emergency room, I have many times visiting patients, doing crisis work. Uh, I used to do a lot of work uh, on the street before the pandemic and years prior too. So end up in emerge with a family or with someone in an overdose or a suicidal situation, uh, sometimes all night long. And um, watching the nursing staff and the uh, crisis team and the and the triage team and so on, it's remarkable. It's just remarkable. Um, she's lost her, you know, Shaglala herself uh, lost family members due to COVID um, and have continued to care for patients in spite of her own trauma. I lost my own dad to it, and it's not easy to go into work sometimes. You see, people are often on life support, and I try my best to keep my head up. Healthcare workers of all stripes now are facing unprecedented challenges during the pandemic, navigating difficulties like overwhelmed hospitals, a growing backlog of surgeries and diagnostic exams. Everything's behind, right? And the impact of the virus on their own lives, their, you know, their own Russian roulette that they play, so to speak, when they walk through the door every day during these times. But nurses are seeking mental health care now more than any other frontline healthcare profession. According to the data provided by the STAR, uh, by the Ontario Health on its COVID frontline wellness program, which launched nearly two years ago in April. Nurses and advocates say that the data points to a need for accessible mental health services for a struggling workforce. Of all the frontline fire, police, and healthcare, nurses have the least availability in dollars to spend on mental health benefits, according to Catherine Hoy, and she's the president of the Ontario Nurses Association. Since May 2020, the COVID Frontline Wellness Program has received 2,351 self-referrals from healthcare workers seeking one-on-one counseling. Nearly half of those referrals, around 47%, were from nurses, and 86% of them, of those seeking help, identify as women. We saw very few physicians, according to Paul uh, Kurdiak, a, psychi- a psychiatrist and clinical vice president of Ontario's Medical Mental Health and Addiction Center of Excellence, which helped launch the program. Uh, other frontline workers accessing counseling include personal support workers, PSWs. Uh, I got, uh, we got PSWs working for my mom, work with my mom, who are just... These are just remarkable, remarkable, remarkable people. So personal support workers, social workers, custodial workers, and those in hospital administrative roles. The program received renewed funding from the federal, from the government last November. I believe it's provincial government with a further injection of $12.4 million, part of which will keep it running for at least another two years. One of its unique hallmarks, Kodiak says, was how rapidly it was set up and how quickly it offers one-on-one counseling to those who are reaching out for help in the mental health care sector. As people are other, often otherwise met with lengthy wait lists, they're immediately available. Health is, help is immediately available for those that require it. If you're a frontline worker, a nurse, a nurse in this case, in, in particular, um, which is remarkable because if the nurses aren't well, like if, like for example, if I'm in a bad spot mentally and if my OCD, my ADD, my anxiety disorder, whatever, any of those are out of whack and I'm not in good shape, I can't help my patients. I can't deal with my one-on-one patients. I can't direct my staff that deal with patients indirectly. So I'm not directly involved, but still have to direct the care. Um, If I'm not intact, they aren't either. So I have to make sure that I keep myself in check. And that's what you want for your nurses and doctors and ambulance drivers and everyone else that's out there that you're going to rely on one day, God forbid, to come to your house and help you with something. So the previously released data by Mental Health Research Canada shows that healthcare workers and nurses in particular 
have been profoundly impacted by the pandemic. I mean, it just makes sense, right? They're right in the front line of it. They see it. It's just, you know, has to be awful, especially in the beginning stages when people were dying left, right, and center. The average anxiety rating for nurses is up by 50% from pre-pandemic levels. Uh, the data shows an anxiety disorder diagnoses are more frequent amongst healthcare workers than ever before. Critiac says many uh, accessing COVID-19 frontline healthcare mental health supports have benefited from just a few counseling sessions. But a small percentage with pre-existing mental health issues, right? Like there are nurses and doctors and people out there that have pre-existing mental health uh, conditions. Um, they require longer, more, uh, more uh, consistent help over a longer period of time. He added this outcome shows how quick access to mental health care can prevent the worsening of someone's health down the line. It reduced the, it reduced their impact and reduced their, uh, uh, I guess the blow up period for the mental health disorder by, by a significant amount. It just saves an individual a lot of heartache. Uh, Shogala has an access to program herself. Remember her? She goes back to the, R, the RN that we were talking about, an emergency room nurse. But she said she recognizes the importance of having supports in place. She and her colleagues, she said, are often heavily involved in patient care. So during limit during limits on visitations, due to gun, nurses have acted as a liaison between a patient and their family. In other words, way beyond their job of just doing what they knew need to do from a medical perspective when there were restrictions for all that time and patients couldn't have their families there were, you could see pictures i saw videos of nurses holding phones their own phones making sure that their loved that someone's loved ones could see the patients in uh in the hospitals in whatever stage they were at for people separation from family was be worse than the illness itself in many cases we have many people on life support with families crying on the phone, and that's not an easy thing to deal with, she goes on to say. More recently, protests near the hospitals, right, during which healthcare workers have faced all kinds of intimidation, being sworn at, having things thrown at them, being called horrible names, has also been a cause of tremendous stress for frontline workers, nurses in particular. And Shogala noted nursing, noted nursing has always been a difficult profession and that nurses have dealt with harassment in the workplace even long before COVID-19. You know, you can imagine, you know, you've got a family in there, they're distraught, the patient's not doing well, their loved one's not doing well. They act out, right? People just are angry and they have to vent to somebody. Addressing the root causes of nursing shortages as well as improving wages and providing additional protections would go a long way in improving the well-being of nurses, says Doris Greenspun. She's the chief executive officer of Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. I, I don't know what nurses get paid, but it's not enough. We need to treat nurses with the respect and dignity they deserve and with the compensation they deserve, Greenspun goes on to say. Nurses deserve more than just a few months of support, she said. They've done so much for everyone for so long. And this is an article by the wonderful writer Nadine Youssef, who continues to avoid me. I keep trying to get her on the on the air here. She's a Toronto-based reporter for the Star. She covers mental health. I've been following her since she was an intern uh, when she was in school, and she's a brilliant mental health writer. Uh, when we come back, we're going to do a little bit of house cleaning here as it relates to teachers and childcare workers. What happens when they get busted? When they get charged with something criminal? How do you know about it? Well. Up until now, we haven't been able to, but something's about to change. We're going to talk about it as soon as we get back here. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. This is Yona. Thank you for uh, joining us this evening. Do you think that teachers and those working with kids in childcare or ballet teachers, judo teachers, you think when they commit a crime 
or get involved in some kind of illegal activity, you should know about it as a parent. You should be able to go to a list and check it out. One would think it's just a natural thing to do. The answer should be, of course. There's got to be a list out there. Well, apparently not. So now Ontario is to name teachers and child care workers facing criminal charges or convicted of serious crimes. It will be the first, I, I, I find this mind-boggling, but whatever, uh, it will be the first province, if you can believe it, to release the names of teachers and child care workers facing serious charges or convicted of crimes. Though some critics are raising concerns about the ruined reputations when cases are dropped or educators are found not guilty. Parents have a right to know if an educator is charged or convicted of a serious crime because we take zero tolerance on this, according to Stephen Litchey said at the press conference on this past Tuesday in Maple alongside of Jane McKenna, an associate minister of child children excuse me, and women's issues. He had previously announced that all teachers in the province must complete a sexual abuse prevention information program, also the first of its kind in Canada, and imposed a lifetime ban from the profession. One uh, and imposed a lifetime ban from the profession, one that was applied retroactively. If an educator has engaged in physical sexual relations with a student or is involved in any way with child pornography, the province said in a written list, or a written release. Okay, but I want to know if my kid's going to school and his teacher is a drug dealer, or if my the teachers had several DUIs, or if the teachers had issues around fraud and uh, misrepresentation. Like, I, I don't want to, you know, sexual stuff is, the, is a natural. It makes sense. It's just, you know, obviously we want to know that stuff. I want to know everything. I want to be able to check on a teacher and know, you know, what they've done wrong. The same as I would if I've, someone was running for some government office. They do a pretty in-depth check. I think we should do a better check on the, the people that take care of our children. Both the Ontario College of Teachers and College of Early Childhood Educators will post information about criminal proceedings on their, on their online publicly, re, public registry of members. The objective is to protect students. It's a non-controversial point, said Bob Dabrowski, uh, Dabrowski, president of the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association. Um, but these are the same people that tied that kid up, uh, the four-year-old, phoned the police. We must be sure that all the teachers and educators, I'm not sure they tied them up. I think they just held them down, restricted them, whatever. We don't have to go back to that. And education workers are entitled to due process in the event that they are alleged uh, to have committed wrongdoings. She also noted that if it's serious criminal charges relevant to a teacher's practice or moving forward, the teacher is removed from the classroom immediately. So it's unclear how publicizing of unproven allegation works to protect students of uh, or serve the public interest, according to this article. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, which represents teachers and, in some boards, early childhood educators, they issued a statement saying it's a concern that the move creates situations where members who are found innocent of alleged offenses could see irreversible damage to their reputation and livelihoods. And said, Le- said Lecce, seems to be focused on demo- uh, demonizing educators. I don't think that's the, the goal for uh, Minister Lecce at all. I think he's trying to do the right thing by protecting students and giving them an opportunity, uh, giving us as family and parents to have an, uh, you know, to know who's out there. Like who's teaching our kids? I mean, how many articles do we have to talk about? How many situations do we have to bring to the table, uh, in these segments that I do? Plus, you know, all of my colleagues across, um, all of the chorus networks and, and, and through global, um, you know, all of our news network associates, how many stories we have to do about a karate teacher that was found, you know, uh, inappropriately touching a, a, a student or a gym teacher or a ballet teacher or a skating teacher or skating coaches or hockey coaches. Like, you know, if your kid's playing hockey, don't you want to know about the coach? 
Like, honestly, ask yourself right now. I'm here talking to you, right? Don't hide from me, right? You know where you are. Just keep your head up and talk to me. Ask yourself the question. Do I really know who my kid's hockey coach is? Do I know what they do? Do I know that where they come from? Do I know what they did before they were coaching my kid? The answer for most people is no. We don't know. We don't check. We don't do proper due diligence. We don't check people out. You know, we were looking at caregivers for my mom, and they come with all kinds of references and all kinds of families that say they're great and they're this and they're that. First thing I said to my wife, Pumpkin, is, okay, let's do a criminal check. She says, why? I said, well, it's obvious. They're going to be living in the house with our parents. We need to know if these people are, are, are you know, have criminal past, if they have some theft issues or fraud issues. It just makes sense to me. I mean, I, I, th- I, see, I think like that anyway, right? I think like, you know, someone who should be protecting themselves from crime because I think a little bit like a criminal in terms of my mindset, which is how I do the kind of work I do and did the kind of work I did in the jail system for years um, because I understand the mindset of someone who lies, steals, and cheats, right? So the, the, the simple, since disciplinary charges changes were introduced in 2019, Okay, 101 educators have lost their teaching license and 126 have been suspended from their jobs. Since 2019, the College of Teachers also revokes the licenses of some 28 teachers retroactively for sexual abuse or other serious criminal involvement, even if their certificates have been previously reinstated. We often hear about students or about teachers that are uh, brought up on certain charges and all of a sudden, you know, they're found not to be... uh, uh, they can't find corroborating information or proper witnesses because it's hard to get the kids to want to tell the truth or come and tell the story. It's just a mess. But now publishing stuff in advance at least gives us the ability to do a, a quick check to see if they're dirt bags or not. And if they are, we want to make sure that our kids aren't being in the care, aren't in the care of those who can't teach them the right things and who will not keep them safe. You know, how many stories have I heard from kids, pa- patients, who at, as children would come home and tell their parents that their 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 uh, principal or their teacher or their rabbi or their priest or their their, uh, their hockey coach touched them in, inappropriately and the parents many, many times would say, well, you know, maybe it's not really what you think and, you know, kind of didn't give them, didn't validate their, their situation. And that leads to a really bad situation. Because kids then don't trust adults enough to tell them when something bad Make sure you tell your loved ones that you uh, care about them and that makes a big difference uh, in how they feel going forward. Lots of hugs and kisses, lots of, hey, you know what, you're special to me. That's what we need right now, more nice. Let's spread, 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 lots and lots of nice. We'll see you next week. Yonabud, 640, Toronto.